I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm here today with uh, David Epstein, and uh, we're in New York, although uh, Dev and I actually met in Istanbul, where we were both uh, speaking there a few weeks ago, right? Yep, we did. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's an unusual place, I think, to meet, but uh, we're here to talk a little bit about some of David's work in sports, and uh, his, his book that came out a couple of years ago, and uh, some of the ideas he's thinking about now. So, Dave, can you take us through just a little bit about the premise behind the sports gene? Sure. It was kind of, I mean, I guess the, the dirty secret of the sports gene was that uh, it was really like 15 of my own deepest questions about the nature and nurture of sports performance um, and, and skill acquisition in general and what the kind of balance between nature and nurture is when it comes to high performance athletics and I really wanted to delve into that and, and try to take a look at everything we've learned in the decades since the sequencing of the human genome about what, what have we learned about the balance of nature and nurture and athleticism because usually it's just people arguing their intuition and I wanted to take these questions as far as I could, or as far as science has taken them so far, basically. Right. And you know, one of the really fascinating ideas was that, you know, when you look at a organized competition, it, it really shows you the diversity of, of human genetics. That's right, that's right. So <laughs> the way I got interested in that topic was because I noticed that there was this group of sports psychologists who were saying, well, athletes have gotten so much better in recent decades and their genes haven't evolved in that time, so it must just be practice. Right. And I said, I'd seen a lot of data about how body types have been changing in sports, and I said, their genes absolutely have been changing, not in population as a whole, but within each sport. So in fact, in the early half of the 20th century, sports science was kind of dominated by German sports science that had these particular sort of racial agendas. You would see in some of their papers, they would use the phrase, the perfect form of man, which meant only a man, only a white man, and it was medium height, medium weight. Well, they said would be the best for everything. It's kind of an average prototype. Hmm. That started to go away in, in favor of more rigorous science that showed that very specific types of bodies are perfect for different sports. So in the early half of the 20th century, for example, the average elite high jumper and elite shot putter, exact same size. Today, the average elite shot putter, two and a half inches taller, 130 pounds heavier, right? The bodies have gotten much more specific to their niches. So what's changed? Is it our selection process? It's the selection process. So first the sports went global, right? right. And the filtering system and the... There are a couple things. So the, for one, there's been what's called a superstar effect, right? So previously, earlier in the 20th century, most athletes were part of like European clubs that had amateurs and families and also supported these kind of low-level pros and semi-pros. And when that kind of went away, so with digital revolution, right? First you get radio, and then television, the internet, and s suddenly instead of most people being kind of amateur athletes and some spectators, many more people became remote control athletes, spectators, and the, all of the fame and financial rewards tipped toward these tiny people at the very, very top. So most people became spectators. Right. So instead of consuming the performances of your local athlete, Everybody can go see Michael Jordan now. Or can the win a all game. Exactly. And so way far fewer people were in sports, but the, the talent search became incredible. Right? And the, the, what happened to athletes' bodies then is wild. So 
In sports where height is prized, tall athletes got taller. When, when the NBA went global with television and made players partners in the league where they could be a share of ticket revenues and television contracts, literally in one season, the proportion of men in the NBA who were seven feet tall more than doubled from 5% to 11%, such that today, and then that's where it stayed. It was, this global search happened in like a year. Today, if you know an American man between the ages of 20 and 40 who's at least seven feet tall, there's a 17% chance he's a current NBA player, currently in the NBA. So I, I did this, I got all this data to do their data analysis for my book. And not only that, but like my arm span is exactly equal to my height. You know, like the Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian man. The average in the NBA is about six foot six and three quarters height, seven foot long arms is the average. So these, they're incredibly strange. And this has happened in all levels of sports. So the average elite female gymnast shrunk from five foot three to four foot nine in the last 30 years makes for a lower moment of inertia so they can spin better so if you plot on a graph the changes in body types of all different sports in the last hundred years they're all going away from one another like the the tall athletes are getting taller the small smaller all these micro changes in ratio of bones the australian scientists who plotted this noticed that it looked like the charts showing the universe the galaxies flying away from one another so they call it the big bang of body types that right. occurred once sports became more of a consumer thing than a participatory. It's like a, like a hyper form of natural selection. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. So the gene pool in competitive sports absolutely has changed. Even like there are studies looking at water polo players and their forearm, the length of their forearm in relation to their total arm has gotten longer because it makes for more forceful throwing whip. And the opposite for rowers because having a short forearm compared to your total arm makes it easier for pulling. It's sort of quite intuitive to think that certain body types are good in certain types of sports. But where does this actually come from? I, I, I know you, you told this wonderful story of why Jamaicans are such uh, fast runners. What is it about some of the, the way our DNA is set up that makes us good? sports or good at being trained yeah so that those are those are those are really big questions that's partly motivated so some of the reasons I got into this area was I grew up in an area with a lot of Jamaican immigrants and so uh, track and field was really popular at my high school and when I so I got interested in Jamaica a little bit and when I was like 15 or 16 and opened an atlas and saw it's an island of two and a half million people and I said I mean, my high school track team had won our conference championship 24 years in a row. I'm like, what's going on in Jamaica? And then in college, I moved up to be a little longer distance runner. Now I'm meeting these Kenyan guys yeah. and learning, you know, not only are they Kenyan, they're all from one minority tribe in one town in Kenya. Really? And I'm like, okay, what the heck's going on? What were they there feeding again? them? Exactly, exactly. So I went there. So this is kind of a good micro. You went to Kenya? Story. Oh, yeah, yeah. I spent a bunch of time in Kenya. Had to get in really good shape because the easiest way to interview people is to run with them at 9,000 feet there. Um, <laughs> and uh, it turns out, so the tribe that actually produces basically all, so we think of Kenyans as being great marathoners, right? New York Marathon comes, all these Kenyan guys in the front. You go to Kenya, they think of the Kalenjin men as being and women as being great marathoners. It's a minority tribe that makes up about 12% of the population uh, in the Western Rift Valley of Kenya. And... What's really interesting about them, well, first, to, to put their achievement in perspective, there are 17 American men and 14 Brits in history who have run faster than two hours and 10 minutes in the marathon. That's 458 per mile pace. Yeah, about 458 per mile pace. 32 Kalenjin men did that just in the October before my book was published, in one single month. More than 
all history combined <laughs> for almost double the United States. So they have there are a couple things going on there. It's like a perfect nature nurture storm. For one, they have their ancestry at incredibly low latitude, the Kalenjin, in a hot and dry climate. When I was visiting them, I was like zigzagging over the equator to their training sites. And in evolutionary adaptation to evolving in that environment is extremely long limbs compared to your body size. Right. Right? It's it's the same reason that a radiator has coils to increase the surface area compared to the volume to let heat out effectively. And so they have unbelievably long and thin, what's called distal elongation limbs. So they have very little weight. They have long legs with very little weight at the extremity. So if you do a study to look at how that, and the leg's like a pendulum, so it makes it very energy efficient to swing. So there are shoe companies that have done studies where they put, like say, eight pounds of weight on someone's waist when they're running, and that increases the amount of energy they need to use about 1% mm. to go a given pace. If you take that eight pounds and put it as four pound weights around their ankle, it increases it 18%. Right. So the farther it is away from your center of gravity, the tougher it is. And it turns out that what the Kalenjin have is... They're like geocommittee sculptures. They are. It is running, running at a given <laughs> speed, they use less oxygen to do it. Huh. So they have this, on average, this physiology that's very uh, you know, conducive to endurance running. And then they have this environment where there is literally no opportunity cost to trying to train like an Olympian. So you can show up at this, what they call the stadium, which is literally a 400-meter oval of dirt on like a you know, overhanging the Rift Valley, and there's like sheep grazing on the infield, and you'll go and there'll be Olympians and gold medalists training, and then some guy will walk off the Shamba, which is like a subsistence farm, yeah. and just run like a lap or two with a gold medalist, right? They also have this like incredible mentality, like if you told, the guy who holds the world record in the marathon right now, at a little under two minutes, two hours and three minutes, is a challenging guy, who had not run until he was 26, and another marathoner in Kenya said, you look like you could run, why don't you come train with me? Can you imagine if you said that to an American at 26? Like, you look like you could run, come train with me, I'm a, I'm a world champion in the marathon. But instead the guy was like, okay. And three years later, he's the world record. Right? So I think that his physiology combined with this, it's never too late mentality, basically. This sort of suggests in this, in this global search for you know, genetic uh, diversity, what role does training play? I mean, do you, can you have any hope against these people who have sort of been naturally bred for superstars? So, so it's a good question. I mean, for one, they, I mean, part of their secret is that they have so many people training so hard, right? There are lots of people who have, every once in a while I'll see some data from people who are overweight, who actually have like a very strong cardiovascular system, right. but they're never going to be an elite marathoner because they're never going to figure it out because they're overweight, right? So here you have people who, who have high levels of physical activity so they can start training more easily because they're not overweight. And it's a bunch of people who aren't, there's no joggers in Kenya, right? There's people who are running to get somewhere for transportation. There are people who are killing themselves in training to be an Olympian or a pro. And anyone else who's running is an idiot, is like, <laughs> is a tourist. It's right? mad dogs and Englishmen out in the day <laughs> Right. So, so they're, you know, they have this mentality that they'll, they'll train incredibly hard. If, if the Western Rift Valley of Kenya became Finland economically tomorrow, gone. Running phenomenon, gone. So I think it's this combination of this nature and nurture. And that body type is not exclusive to the Kalenjin. Like, the, the best American marathoners have it 
too. It's right. just very, very common and concentrated in that population that's like the size of Atlanta and it produces like almost all of the world's best marathoners. I think one of the interesting things about what you write and think about is, is the ability that if you can identify what your own natural capabilities are, you can adapt your training program to it. And this is something that you experienced yourself as a runner. Very much so, very much so. So I was, I mean, one of the, one of the themes that came out of the research to me was that the one of the revolutionary ideas, probably the, the most revolutionary idea coming out of exercise genetics is the same as some of what's come out of medical genetics, which is that, you know, I might need three Tylenol, well, you only need one because we have different genes involved in acetaminophen metabolism. Or maybe Tylenol doesn't work for me at all. It's all personalized medicine. Right, right. And obviously it's been, a, it's been kind of a hard road to figure out some of the specifics, but it's looking like the same thing uh, occurs for the medicine of training. That no two people respond to any kind of training the same because their genes mediate the improvement. And for me, I had this incredible experience where I was a not good runner and did a bunch of physiological testing and realized that my physiology was a little different than a lot of my peers and, and eventually had genetic testing and was able to tailor my training in a way that worked for me because I'd, I'd had frustration before that. Like, I'm doing what other people are doing. Why isn't it working the same for me? Hmm. How many people say that about their diet or their exercise plan? I think the lack of an ability to tailor really keeps like the diet and exercise fad in business because it never nothing works for everybody. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, people can do incredible, the same identical training and have a hundred percent difference in their improvements in mitochondria or their ability to move oxygen. And sometimes that's because of them, in the deepest sense, not the training. And so, is this is this happening today? You know, with uh, elite athletes, are they doing DNA genetic testing to work out their predisposition to certain types of training? They're doing some of that, but in most cases, they shouldn't, because the physiology testing, which still tells you a lot about your genes, also tells you things about how you've developed in your environment. So that's even better, right? right. So it's like. It, because it's avant-garde, some of these places. So, like, are you I, talking about phrenology? Yeah. So, so I got like a call from the uh, Uzbekistan's Olympic Committee about doing genetic testing. You know, I'm like, don't, don't do it. You're, you're testing for all these genes that have something to do with the kind of muscle fibers people have. Yeah. Just do a Pepsi and look at the muscle fibers directly. You right. know. So I was trying to tell them it's like, it's like looking for what height genes someone has when you can use a tape measure. The tape measure is still going to tell you something about their genetics, but yeah. it's also going to tell you about their new, you know, it's going to tell you exactly what you want to know. So in some cases, measuring genes tells you indirectly something that you can measure directly. So in some cases, the genes are worthwhile, especially when it comes to things like the ability to overcome brain trauma, which is a huge issue in American football now. Um, we now know that some people don't get over, the, are much more predisposed to having permanent damage. But there's, so they should do boxing. They, yeah, right. <laughs> they should retire very early. Um, but this tailoring of training to physiology is absolutely happening. The soccer, for example, when you, if you look at old studies in soccer players, uh, you'll see this actual, strangely, a shift towards slow twitch muscle fibers, the endurance kind, which is unusual because in like the strikers, you know, in the forwards, you want explosiveness. But it turned out they were all, they were training everyone the same. And the midfielders are like middle distance athletes. They have incredible endurance. Forwards, not so much. They have more fast twitch muscle fiber, the kind that doesn't need as much oxygen, but tires really quickly. And when they train them all the same, the forwards get injured like crazy. So those guys just cannot train as much without getting injured because they can contract the muscle so explosively. So now some of these, Netherlands led the way in this, who has been second and third in the last two World Cups and is a tiny country. 
and screening for muscle fiber types and saying, this guy's really good, don't ruin him. Because the first thing you'll do if you overtrain him is start making those muscle fibers take on the characteristics of slower twitch, which you don't want, and then he'll get hurt. And I, they, they've been great with sports science, and that's why a country of 16 million people has been in you know, second and third in the last two World Cups. Part, one reason, one reason, a lot of reasons. Well, we're at this sort of brink now in, in, um, in, in genetics where we have the ability not just to identify but to edit genes. Uh, I think the whole discoveries around CRISPR-Cas9 and you know, genomic, genomic editing. Yeah. Do, do you think we, we we're going to see a future where people are going to intervene early to create the kind of athletes they actually want? You know. And, and how would you do that? Th- that's a good. So, in some ways, the um, we we don't know a lot of genes that go into being a being a perfect athlete, right? So. Uh, it would be hard to make someone perfect. And in fact, if you do a calculation of the probability of all the genes known that contribute to sports performance, the probability of any one person having them all based on their frequency would be like, I did this calculation in the book, it's something like winning the lottery 32 times in a row or right. something. So right, so we don't so actually have a genetic blueprint for a Usain Bolt. Right, right, but what we do have, <clears throat> there are some cases, and I, I give interesting case studies of these in the book where there are, so most traits are the result of lots of genes with small effects. But there are now two known cases with regard to athleticism where a single gene has a huge effect. One in a case of a gene called myostatin, which uh, it produces a protein that basically tells your muscles when to stop growing. Right. And in people who have a certain mutation, that muscle stop sign disappears. And so this will first manifest if they're like a baby and they look like they've been lifting weights, basically. Right. So the first study that was found in this was uh, this German baby, and so if you go to the Journal of the American Medical Association, there's like pictures of his butt and his thighs and stuff, just wham, you know, <laughs> in the, and that actually turns out that's now been found in all kinds of like in, in racing whippets, the dogs that are bred for racing, so the people were just breeding them to be fast, and it turned out they bred this mutation into them, and if you, someone Googles Belgian blue cattle, you'll see these cows that look like they're the Incredible Hulk, same mutation. And the only adult now who's been who has a documented version was a professional sprinter was that baby's mother, right? And so we know that has. So this a big is a effect. known mutation, known single gene mutation that has a huge effect mm. on muscle, and they have like no fat. And there's another one. So I write about this guy in the book who actually recently passed away, named Errol Manturanta, was a Finnish cross country skier, seven time Olympic medalist. When I went to visit him, it was great for narrative because he's a reindeer farmer in the Arctic. And I went to meet him, right? It doesn't get much better than that. Um, he won in cross-country skiing. He won uh, some events in margins that have never before been equaled. But there was kind of a pall cast over his career because he had so many red blood cells that it was right. assumed he was cheating. They thought he was Lance Armstrong, basically. Exactly. Well, and he was, but he was Lance Armstrong naturally. without. Do- he was very similar without doping. About 20 years after he retired... These Finnish researchers started studying his whole family and found that about 29 of the 90 people they studied had this mutation that caused them to, so EPO is what Lance Armstrong was doping with, caused them to over-respond to their own body's natural EPO by producing a crapload of red blood cells. So this guy had like 50% more red blood cells than I do. He was naturally doping. Naturally doped, exactly. And his nephew who had it, also an Olympic gold medalist, niece, world junior champion, Nobody in the family who didn't have it I mean, this, this good a single ge- genetic single gene mutation. So, in, in some ways, probably before we get to um, genome editing, I mean, what about epigenetics? I mean, do you think we can sort of turn these genes off and on? I, th- I think we can. I think, I think it won't be as easy as it's been 
kind of made out to be in the press for right. some reasons because a lot of the would this uh, would this be 21st century doping though? Or? I think so. Right. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think the so some of the stuff that's been on the press, the hype about epigenetics has been based on mice, and and humans clear the epigenome a lot more thoroughly than mice do. Yeah. That said, you can silence certain genes, right? So say if, if we learn how to if we can silence the myostatin gene, you can turn off that protein that tells muscles when to stop growing. Even aside from that, you could do things like, I mean, there's a there's a version of kind of gene therapy called naked DNA dump, which is basically like just dumping a bunch of genes made in a lab into the bloodstream and hoping some of them get picked up. And like a bright molecular bio grad student could pull that off and it would probably be effective. It might run out of control or something like that. But you might end up with cancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure people are... I think athletes have shown that they're willing to try stuff, even if yeah. it's very, very harmful for their health. So anytime you have these single gene targets, that means those are targets for various kinds of gene editing or, or manipulation. Uh, you know, one of the things I think this leads into is, is we start going beyond physiology into cognition. Uh, to what degree do you believe that intelligence is is also susceptible to this nature versus nurture debate? Because it's funny, you know, because when we're talking about it, people sort of accept that we are born with different physical abilities, but it becomes very political. Yeah. And, uh, and a question of, uh, I guess, ethics when, when people start talking about cognition. Yeah, yeah. And so I've been learning about this <clears throat> uh, recently, and I can't say I'm thrilled with everything I've been discovering because... Um, but I have been convinced that the work is incredibly rigorous in some parts of this area, that there uh, is a significant nature component to a lot of cognitive abilities. And that doesn't mean that people can't improve them. That doesn't mean that people don't need the best opportunities. But, but again, I always think of when it comes to this kind of nature versus nurture study, that better than uh, either viewing the world only as we would like it to be or being, or being a pessimist and a total determinist is finding out the differences between people that are real, not results of bias or folklore, which of those matter for the outcomes we care about, and then how can we work with those to get the optimal outcomes for all people. And I think there's a lot that intelligence research has to say about the fact that there are major genetic components to, like for example, um, in adoption studies, adopted kids, their cognitive ability tests look a lot like their biological parents and nothing like their adoptive parents. Right? There were even some unethical studies done, I think unethical, where a, a kids were essentially randomly assigned to families so they could be studied and to look at the impact. You know, and, and there was some impact, but the kids still tend to resemble their biological families. Well, why do you think we have this natural bias that somehow cognitive ability isn't a result of evolu evolution? Uh, you, you mentioned there was a great study, I think, uh, where they asked uh, people about, about the, uh, uh, the outcomes of evolutionary biology. Oh, yeah, yeah. Biology. This, I was just reading this study about how <laughs> it showed that people who are the most likely to ridicule others for not believing in evolution are also the most likely to deny the findings of evolutionary psychology when someone tells them like what's been learned. And, and the reverse, people who outwardly say, like, I don't believe in evolution, if they're then given some of the tenets of evolutionary psychology are more likely to accept them, which is <laughs> like self-righteousness in both directions. But right. um, I think there are a number of reasons. In this country, I think because certain kinds of cognitive ability testing have been used in such 
heinous and offensive ways to justify discrimination against certain types of people. Um, also, I think it uh, kind of goes against our feeling that we're totally in control of our fate. You know, I think most people get that. Like, they don't think that everything about their life circumstances is exactly due to their own agency, but maybe they, that's not an idea they want to pass down to anyone. Um, but it's just so... You know, I, I think a major concern is that you'll deter people from trying hard or say that it's not fair, that life isn't fair, but life isn't fair. Uh, it certainly seems the logical uh, outcome from what you're saying is if we are going to do uh, phys- physiological testing to see what people are predisposed to in terms of sports, why wouldn't you do similar testing to work out what fields or professions people should also go into? No, I agree. I mean, I think, again, it's not necessarily the world as I would like it to be. I- I'd love it if just hard work was the only thing to distinguish people because then you'd know exactly what you have to do. But given the world as it is, I think we should help everyone find the way they can best exploit their talents, which is why, as we were talking a little before, I got so interested in things like screening people for spatial perception, because we know that ability is important for certain areas of science and engineering. And, for, and for being a fighter pilot. And for being a fighter pilot or a bobsled, pi- or a bobsled <laughs> driver. We, we know it's not strongly inherited from parents. We know it's not well correlated with other uh, aspects of cognitive ability. We know it's not correlated with socioeconomic status. And it doesn't get picked up in school. So here you have this gold mine, this thing where we know there are hidden gems out there in low socioeconomic status communities. And we're not doing anything to find. Instead, we're saying like, oh, everyone's got equal abilities. Let's go find these people and help them be successful. You know, the the professional sports have found a way to naturally globally search for talent. Um, In in some ways, the problem is not so much uh, testing, but the widespread availability of of kind of an organized form of Rewards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is kind of the Olympics for professions? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, I think one thing that really interested me was I, I was reading an article about um, Google recently. And I think yeah. there are starting to be things oh, like this, yeah. like hackathons or whatever. But yeah. Google gave this article where I guess it was the like CFO or somebody like that saying, "Well, we don't we don't really care about your college test scores and stuff." And that got interpreted by some of the press as see they don't they, these, these test scores are meaningless all these measures you know that stuff doesn't matter they're just interested in your creativity but I read like the guy's full remarks and that's not what he was saying at all what he was saying was I don't give a crap what you did in school if I give you this hard problem on the spot and you can think about it creatively and work on it great so that I mean that's about as rigorous a form of cognitive ability testing as you can get being thrown in a room with a question you don't know about and so I think in like the tech communities that kind of there's some of these filtering mechanisms where they just make you try the job right yeah. there or people create things on their own right like you can you know athletes can get scouted now through like these combines or these set up tryouts or because you see them on TV or you can film them now people can go build something online and it's like this is me this is me the equivalent of being a college basketball player scout me from this thing I've made which I think is kind of great because it's like opened up the audition to the whole world. I think it's also made it a lot more competitive, which is good or bad, depending on where you're standing at the moment. <laughs> well, fortunately, you seem to be genetically selected to finding great stories and talking about them. So, <laughs> thanks very much, Dave. It's been, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.